following program has the potential, dare I say, probability to give offense. It's Friday, October 30th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump held a rally in Michigan today. He said a few scurrilous and despicable things that won't even rate a mention in most newscasts just because he says things even worse than this. Omar, Omar, that's the other reason I'm going to win. Omar. Ilhan, Ilhan Omar, she loves our country very much. And Yemen, right? Now I'm going to help, she's going to help me win. She's going to protest when I go up there and I'll say thank you very much. Every time you protest, it's got to add about 25% of the vote. The Biden plan, she's telling us how to run our country and she doesn't love our country. That I can tell you. The Biden plan will turn Michigan into a refugee camp. He also spied one of his media enablers in the crowd and then made a mistake by speaking the truth. Where is Laura? I can't recognize you. Is that a mask? No way. Are you wearing a mask? I've never seen her in a mask. Look at you. Oh, she's being very politically correct. Whoa. Whoa, I've never seen. Wearing a mask is politically correct. What happened to, I like masks. I say, wear the mask. Come on. We know what he thinks. He thinks it's politically correct to wear a mask and he's against political correctness. So I wonder why Laura Ingram, who's also a mask mocker, why she was wearing a mask. Maybe it's because as an intelligent person, she knows they work and she doesn't want to die. Maybe, could be. She must've been pretty upset about being called out from the stage. There goes her cred. But that's not what will crowd that shameful Ilan Omar connected to refugee comment off the news. No, here's the sort of nonsense that's so shocking that maybe it'll actually get coverage. You know, in Germany, if you have a bad heart and you're ready to die, or if you have cancer and you're going to be dying soon, and you catch COVID, that happens. We mark it down to COVID. You know, our doctors get more money if somebody dies from COVID. You know that, right? No, we don't know that because it's not true. In Germany, when you have a bad heart and you're ready to die, they also mark it down as COVID. I will parse. If you got confused about what he was saying, I'll parse it. It seems like he forgot a clause or maybe in Germany, a Klaus. But he's saying that in other countries, COVID per se is not listed as the cause of death. So that's the only reason their COVID numbers seem better. He has repeatedly cited figures that he says show the United States doesn't have more excess mortality than Europe. Total lie. A big lie. The Center for Economic and Policy Research looked at excess mortality March through July, and they found that Europe had 28% lower excess mortality than the U.S. This is a good way to look at it because... You know, some people who get COVID may have died anyway, and also some people who aren't recorded as having died of COVID did. So you look at the mortality rate, the excess mortality rate over the baseline in normal years, and what it shows is that, and this is based on CDC data, the U.S. during that time experienced excess death of 207,000 above normal, what would usually happen. And if the U.S. excess mortality rate had matched that of Europe's lower rate, 57,800 U.S. citizens would have survived. And that's it. I also love the part where he talks about if you have a bad heart and are ready to go. Yeah, ready to go from COVID. 
Because lots of people have bad hearts. They're living with bad hearts. They take a pill, maybe a couple, walk around with some nitroglycerin. They're living with their bad hearts until they get COVID, then they're dying with their bad hearts. It is a disease which is deadly specifically for those with comorbidities. He's arguing that comorbidities shouldn't count against the virus's deadliness. Anyway, it's all another reason why all Trump has to do to lose this election is to be widely covered actually saying the things he very much wants to say. On the show today, I spiel about the coverage of Trump that paints him in a terrible light, which it deserves. The problem is it's not the right particular hue of light. I know, I know, for some reason I fault the media who really wants to take Trump down, yet doesn't adhere to the best version of the truth in doing so. But first, I'm joined by Jeb Bush. Jeb! Exclamation. He has written in support of broadband internet, which you know what? Is a thing we really should have. And with that as a jumping off point, we touch upon issues of character and politics and who might one favor in a certain upcoming election if one were to still root for America flourishing. Jeb does not issue an endorsement. He has not done so, will not do so in this campaign. Oh, no. But it doesn't take amazing feats of ruinic interpretation to see which candidate more aligns with Jeb Bush's vision of a country that's functional and which candidate upsets, retards, or you might say blows up that vision. Jeb Bush up next. Jeb Bush was a two-term governor of Florida and, as you may know, brother of a president, son of a president, vice president, China ambassador, they didn't call it that, CIA director, grandson of a senator, father of a Texas elected official. And now he has written for Slate, which is, I suppose, the highlight of his career. And he's writing about broadband. Broadband internet is an imperative, not a luxury. I agree. It's, I would say, item, I don't know, 1,400 on the list of how is this America? How is our broadband so inadequate? Former governor joins me now to talk about broadband. Thanks for coming on. You bet, Mike. You know, all of this was exacerbated by the pandemic. And I've lived basically in my zip code since March 10th, and I've been more productive. My businesses are thriving. I've learned a lot more. My health is better. And without broadband, none of that would happen. So you think about all the people that don't have access to broadband and how that's impacted education, health, and now the economy. Accessing a job is going to be determined if you can work from home, maybe, you know, so I think this is a crisis that we can solve and we ought to do it. Yes. And like many American crises, until it comes to a head, we often take our eye off the ball and don't pay attention. So I do think cliche as it is, this is something of an opportunity. How are you seeing the opportunity of uh, broadband expenditure going? So I think there's a great opportunity at some point, whether it's post-election or, you know, in the um, transition period or in the, the next administration, there will be a stimulus package. The House has one pending. It's only a mere $2.2 trillion, but in, included in that is $100 billion for broadly defined digital infrastructure. So if you combine a slug of federal one-time monies, combined with efforts in philanthropy, business, state and local governments, and private sector investing, you could see how you could build out a digital infrastructure highway, if you will, that would be quite similar to the interstate highway system that was uh, devised uh, and designed in the 1950s. And we can do it a far faster at a lower cost. And so I do think there's going to be a big opportunity 
Very few people believe that this is not a crisis. And most people I talk to think that we can solve it. So if this is a crisis, which I agree with, so if this is an opportunity, like as you know, and as you nodded to in the piece, every time someone asks you to spend, they always try to sell the public on. It's actually an investment and it usually isn't. But every expert agrees this is an investment that will return money on whatever expenditure is made. And if there is actually the politics of this is there's bipartisan support. There are a lot of rural areas represented by Republicans that definitely need broadband. There are some commerce-minded Republicans who would definitely say this will be great for business. I think I'm talking to one. So assess for me the politics and not just in the HEROES Act, but maybe you could talk about this. But why hasn't it been done yet? Because our political system is basically run out of gas in Washington, D.C. Everybody talks about infrastructure, but we've been talking about it now for probably eight years. Even when people agree in Washington, D.C., they can't get things done. Now we're in the midst of a pandemic. And I think that's the catalyst that would that creates this big opportunity, as you say. And the constituencies that would benefit from this are, as you say, correctly so, are really diverse. You have large swaths of the rural areas. There isn't high-speed broadband. You have people nearer at the poverty level in the urban areas that don't have access to devices or high-speed broadband. And so I do think that there's a broad constituency for this. And look, the implementation of 5G, that alone creates a need for this. If you can't access the kinds of technologies that are cascading into our lives, you're going to be left behind. And we're now in a, in a moment of history in our country where social justice issues are, are very important, legitimately so. It goes way beyond talking about the social justice issues and creating a plan of action. And so, look, I'm not a big optimist about Washington, D.C. these days, but I do think that this is one place where there could be the catalyst of federal monies will yield all sorts of other initiatives around the country. And I've talked to business leaders. I've talked to the largest philanthropists in, the, in our country, and all of them believe that this should be a high priority. If this were a standalone expenditure and not part of the HEROES Act, and I understand and, you know, we're not here to debate whether that should be passed or not. I'll give you my opinion. It should or something close to it. But if this were a standalone expenditure, do you think the Senate, as currently constituted, would vote for the expenditure? Um, great question. I don't know. I think uh, the 60 vote rule may make that difficult just because of the gridlock. If it's part of a broader package. Look, I mean, the president has gone from no package at all to urging the Senate Republicans to act. And they've gone up to over a half a trillion dollars. Trump has said he's willing to do a trillion eight hundred billion. That used to be a lot of money. And the House Democrats are saying, no, we have to have two point two trillion. So it could happen in, in the um, in the transition period. And it certainly will happen if Joe Biden is elected, if he makes it a high priority, because the HEROES Act or whatever it will be called is going to be, if, if we don't have the support for families that are still quarantined and can't work, there's going to be a lot of economic devastation. And I think there's broad consensus, put aside the amount, that there is a need to act. Yeah, I think this is a good topic to talk about in and of itself, but it also stands for other topics. But let's just stick on this for a second. FCC Commissioner Jeffrey Starks, actually a Trump appointee, has framed broadband as a civil right. He wrote about it in Essence magazine in a piece uh, co-authored with civil rights activists. What do you think of that framing? I think it is an economic justice issue for sure. No question about it. Look, we have 400,000 teachers that don't have access to high-speed internet. How are they going to teach? How do they teach if they're, if they're stuck in their home? 
there are millions of kids that don't have devices and or high-speed internet. And so low-income kids have had a full semester of being left behind. And if we go through a full year, that is a, a social justice issue of epic proportions. It's hard to overcome, remediate a year and a half loss of learning. Income inequality has been exacerbated by the, by the coronavirus. And we can't just keep writing checks to provide support for people. I think that's a temporary solution. A more long-term solution would be to invest in our future and allow people access to that opportunity that comes from it. So you referenced that under current rules with a 60-vote threshold, it might be hard to pass. Well, brings it up. What do you think of the filibuster? Is that part of the reason that Washington is so deadlocked and inefficient? No, I think it's deadlocked and inefficient because the people we elect are allowed to do it. They're rewarded for proposing, <laughs> acting on gridlock. The filibuster rule has been in existence for many, many years, and the great legislative uh, successes have happened with the 60-vote rule. But today, you know, we've hollowed out the center. Today, you don't get rewarded politically if you try to reach across the aisle. And we're going to need to have reconciliation as a key element of our political process for us to get back to that. But if we get rid of the the filibuster rule, here's what's going to happen. Democrats this time would jam it down the throats of the Republicans for all sorts of things. Then the Republicans could easily get in with a pushback if the overreach does happen, and they'll do the same. And we're going to start looking like a banana republic if that's the case. Yeah, that's true in the abstract. And I think 10 years ago, I'd have agreed with you. But I would also say there has to be some point where you just need progress, even if it takes doing away with uh, a legislative tradition. And I do think we've reached that point. You said it yourself. There is no reward for centrism or the middle ground. That is the system in which knowing that it doesn't exist and that you can't get it, maybe you just go with uh, whatever party in power gets to enact an agenda, any agenda. Well, if that's the case, that would go against the wishes of uh, Joe Biden, who is an institutionalist, I guess, and has never supported the filibuster rule. Whenever the government was shut down during the Obama era, it took Joe Biden 15 minutes to have a conversation with Mitch McConnell and they'd cut a deal. Getting back to that kind of regular order way, I think, is essential for our democracy to work. The bigger the, the, the initiatives, the more it requires consensus. You're not going to have that if if you just simply say, we don't have to change our culture. We don't have to change how we operate. We're still going to be, you know, two armed camps. We're just going to get rid of the filibuster rule, you know, make the fighting even more severe. Okay, so that's a discussion on process. We are talking about broadband. Let's use that as an example. There has to be some reason philosophically why Mitch McConnell has opposed expenditures, funding broadband. Many other Republicans are against it in the name of, say, austerity. Has your opinion about just the general idea of the advisability of deficits and the necessity of deficit spending, has it changed as evidence has come in over the last decade or so? Look, (laughs) the idea that Republicans are uh, advocating austerity is just kind of out of context with reality here because um, everybody's advocating spending. It's just the Democrats are advocating spending massive amounts. We have a $3.1 trillion deficit this year, which is roughly 70, 60% of our total spending. It's, it's a, you know, these are big numbers. What differentiates this kind of spending is that I do believe this is an investment. It's one-time monies that will yield long-term returns and will give people access to opportunity that otherwise they won't have. 
access to opportunity of better health care, access to opportunity of a better job, access to opportunity to be able to live wherever they want. Maybe they want to leave San Jose, California, where they can't afford a home and move to back where they came from, maybe at half the price for a home that they can raise their family in the open outdoors in a peaceful fashion. They're going to need broadband internet. Um, so this is an opportunity investment that will have big, big economic benefits. It happens to be inside of a, of a much larger bill. And so it gets, that, that creates some confusion perhaps, but they could do the standalone and be fine with me too. Is this a part of, I mean, we, we analogize it. It's an obvious analogy to the National Highway Transportation Act, but should it be seen as part of infrastructure, maybe not tangible infrastructure, but infrastructure? And it does seem like every discussion of infrastructure does get stalled on the rocky shoals of worrying about the deficit. This is 21st century infrastructure. There's no question that if you can lay out high-speed internet for all, and you do it in a creative way where it's means tested for some, uh, where private investment comes in once the, uh, the broadband is laid out, the rural areas are covered, the urban areas where there are you know, a large number of people that are poor have the same access to opportunity. You'll see billions and billions of dollars of investment through that infrastructure. So I, I view it as it's clearly infrastructure. Now, devices, for kids in school, that's an expenditure. Those, those devices typically in an education environment normally last just a year. Uh, but that's another essential element of this. If we're going to move to a system of learning where the home becomes an important part of uh, the learning experience, we're going to have to make sure that we do that too. That doesn't necessarily require the same kind of federal government commitment. That can be done uh, in a more bottom-up way. But are you optimistic that other forms of infrastructure, traditional bridges and tunnels forms of infrastructure, is America still up to that challenge? Sure hope so. Um, Me too. We live in a place that's where infrastructure is relatively new, and the state of Florida has made a pretty good long-term commitment to roads and bridges, uh, water systems and the like. But there are parts of our country that are literally crumbling. If we want to stay competitive, this is a far better return on the investment than monies that are spent on a recurring basis to provide support, but not opportunity. If a broadband bill comes into being, if $100 billion are spent, what about making the broadband affordable? It's great if, I mean, where I live, you could get 25 MB, but it costs $150 a month. Not everyone could pay that. And now with schools, everyone needs to pay that. What do we do about that? Well, that's where the FCC and other not-for-profit organizations and foundations can play a critical role as it relates to means testing this cost. We have a system in place that allows that to happen for phones. You could also consider doing it, and I think the FCC is actually looking at this, you could do it for the actual uh, broadband into the home. So it's never easy to uh, spend all this money and build all this out. But you just mentioned 5G. This is something when you were in office, you probably never had to consider. But there are a lot of conspiracy theories about 5G. Do you have to take that into effect, find some way to message or create or at least combat disinformation around the concerns about 5G? We're living in a world where conspiracies run rampant. People, there's a lot of fake news. We don't have a set of a set of facts that we can rely on. Uh, people kind of go into their own little ecosystems and have their views validated. It's a danger. I mean, look, a majority of Americans will not take a vaccine. We've been in a stinking quarantine since March. 
and people have lost their jobs. Millions of people have lost their jobs. And we're now talking about, no, no, I'm not going to take the vaccine. I don't trust it. Um, Anti-vaxxers, high income people, you know, prior to the pandemic were wrecking havoc. They weren't sending their children to school vaccinated, which uh, creates a public health risk. So yeah, we have all sorts of weird things going on, but that should not stop progress. 5G is going to create whole new economies. It's going to create whole new industries. It's going to make life a lot better if it's implemented faithfully and everybody can access it. Are you more pessimistic now than when you were in office? Um, yeah. Yeah, I am. I mean, our political system is, is more confrontational, not focused on achieving results, building strategies, implementing strategies, measuring the strategies, you know, showing the results and then creating another iteration of reform. I think our political system is temporarily dysfunctional. I happen to think it'll come back. I'm, I'm not, I don't think anything in life is linear anymore. I do think culture is going to change and it'll become a better environment for our political process to work. And I also think we're on the verge of one of the greatest times to ever be alive. And so the question is, can everybody access that vision? Uh, and that should be one of the great opportunities of our country is to restore that sense that everybody can benefit from this amazing world that we're moving towards. How much will the results of the upcoming election alleviate or deepen your pessimism, would you say? That's a good question. I think it's uh, it's hard to tell right now. If uh, President Trump is elected, he could have a life-changing event, recognizing a sea change in his attitude, recognizing that he would have four years to build a legacy that he might want to make it different than the one that he has right now. And Joe Biden will have the choice of, well, will he be a president that focuses on decency, reconciliation, representing everybody? Or will he double down on a pretty aggressive, progressive agenda that he advocated as uh, in order to reach consensus in the Democratic Party? Both those alternatives could possibly exist, and both the presidents will be the ones that will determine whether or not Many of us, not just me, will be optimistic about the future or believing our political system is dragging us down a bit. Yeah. And I know you haven't, and I don't suspect you will endorse. I don't know. It's your decision. But I just want to say this back to you to make sure I got it right. You're saying that if Donald Trump changes entirely, he could have a different presidency. Or if Joe Biden chooses from his various options, he could set the nation on a different course. That's pretty much the choice. Yes, I think that's what I said. And I would add another feature to this, which is politics is a mirror image, maybe a circus mirror prone to exaggeration of our culture. And our culture has run its course. The baby boomer counterculture of the 60s that morphed into the dominant culture of America has run its course. It's run out of gas. And there will be something that supplants it. And it'll be driven by millennials and Gen Z and the values that that they share. That's yet to be defined, but that'll change our politics as well. And I think it's time for the baby boomers to take a step off the stage. <laughs> I think it's time for them to go. But ironically, we have the two oldest presidential candidates in the history of our country, I believe. A speaker of a house that's even older and a, a majority leader that's even older and Mitch McConnell, who's 74 or 75 as well. At some point, a new generation needs to emerge and, and they'll have fresh thinking and different values, I think. Yeah. Okay. I have one last question for you. Here's my question. I read The China Diary of Your Father, which was published because I did an interview with one of his biographers. And at one point he talks about you as being, it's very, it's very touching, an, an attractive kid who's got it all, but he talks about how sensitive you are. And here's my question. 
Is it more helpful or hurtful in order to pass an agenda, but also connect with the people you're passing the agenda in the name of, more helpful or hurtful for a politician to be sensitive? Well, um, I enjoyed my service as governor because I got to serve. I strive to, to have a servant's heart. You have to care about people. You know, and I, I learned that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a policy nerd. I can give you a five-point plan for all sorts of things. But what I learned in my losses, particularly my first race, was you have to connect on a human level with people. They want to know you care about them. And uh, successful leaders, you know, show that. They show that. Look at, look at the successful governors. They show their heart. It's why governors have done pretty well during the pandemic in terms of their approval ratings. Because they're all in. They care about people. They give people hope. They have a plan. They explain it. The successful governors, uh, that's the kind of common denominator that they have. And at the heart of that, you have to have empathy for people, for sure. Jeb Bush, former governor of Florida and now author of Broadband Internet is an imperative, not a luxury. Read about it in Slate. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. And now the spiel. You're going to hate me. I'm sorry, I can't turn it off. When the news reports some horrible things that could very well hurt Trump, but those things, even though they're unfavorable to the worst president of my lifetime, but those things aren't, you know, strictly speaking, 100% accurate, I still chafe. I hold those pieces of information to my standard, not his. It's true we can hardly even speak of all the terrible things attributed to Trump and still have time left in the day, right? So much is his fault and so much of the bad things that are happening to America are attributable to him. But not everything's his fault. Not everything bad's attributable to him. And a lot of the things that he does, some of the things, maybe two of the things weren't that bad. Anyway, like I said, I can't turn it off. I would be more popular if I could. You know, his reign has been awful. He lies all the time. And no benefit of the doubt should ever be extended to him. Almost nothing, as he says, should be taken as fact or on face value. But I do find that the media knows this and it gives them leeway. It gives them leeway to slip from a standard of here is something we can prove to more like a standard of it could be true. It's not likely to be false. Let's take this Sanjay Gupta report, a special report on CNN. So CNN investigated what happened at 17 recent Trump rallies, specifically looking at infection rates in the counties where the rallies took place four weeks before and four weeks after, and then also comparing them to the corresponding rates at the state level. The results were startling. Well, that is startling because others have done similar research and what they found can best be described as mixed. Sometimes there are clearly people whose infections can in fact be traced back to Trump rallies directly. This shouldn't be surprising. Trump doesn't require masks. People are packed in tight and often the rallies aren't even fully outdoors. He's held them in airport hangars, for instance. But there have been, like I said, other studies just like this CNN one studies done by epidemiologists, and they don't show 
the facts as starkly as Sanjay Gupta presents them. I'll read to you the results of researchers at the Center for American Progress, the liberal think tank. Quote, the authors looked at 22 Trump rallies held between June and September. 22, not 17, by the way. COVID cases in the county that held the rally went up in half of them. In eight of the 11 counties where COVID went up, it was a smallish sized county or corona caseloads were in the single digits per 100,000 to start off with. The authors of this report, pretty responsibly, I thought, list reasons that explain why a high case count in a county after a Trump rally might not be directly cause and effect. Quote, cases may have risen for reasons independent of the political events. For example, Tulsa was already emerging as a regional hotspot for the virus prior to the Trump event. In addition, many of the late summer rallies coincide with other factors driving up cases, including school reopenings, the cooler weather, sending people indoors, and pandemic fatigue. They also, the authors do note, that after a big rally, more people get tested, maybe just wondering if they caught the virus that the media they consume tells us is no worse than the flu. But yeah, tests could go up, positives could go up. That could be an explanation. And I here will add another reason. Trump chooses to have rallies in places that can draw a crowd of Trump rally goers, which is to say people stupid enough to engage in this dangerous behavior. And those people will probably engage in dangerous behavior in other places like bars, bowling alleys, or weddings, which brings me to September 18th. Bemidji, Minnesota. Rates of infection were already climbing in the month before the rally. By the day of the rally, the rate of infection was 6.36 for every 100,000 people in the county, about half the rate of Minnesota. But a month after the rally, the rate of infection in the county had jumped more than 385% and quickly bypassed the state's rate of infection. Okay, pretty clear. County officials in Bemidji's County, which is Beltrami County, found nine cases of COVID among people who went to his rally. But they found 15 cases of COVID associated with a wedding that was held in the county the next day. And also rises in a number of Minnesota counties, hundreds of miles away from anywhere Trump held a rally, also spiked even more than they did in Beltrami County. Statistically, if I picked a random assortment of counties in states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota, where Trump did nine of the rallies that we're talking about, I would find rising cases above the average in about half. That's just math. Now, Trump absolutely did act irresponsibly. Of course he did. If he never had any of these outdoor rallies or held them like Joe Biden, I'd say it's 100% certain that at least a couple dozen people who got COVID wouldn't have had it. Other than that, you can't really draw firm conclusions, let alone, as Dr. Gupta says, startling conclusions. But that is one report. It's exactly on the right side of the proper message. It's just that it hypes conclusions that are unearned. The main point is that Trump's rallies themselves can be proved to be super spreader events. It's that they might be super spreader or some version of spreader events, but they, their amplification is the horrible thing. They give absolutely the worst message. Now, let me come to another report I heard that uh, seems to be anti-Trump or hurts Trump, but it is kind of passed along unchecked. MSNBC Today reporter Tremaine Lee surveyed a panel of black men who all said they didn't vote against Trump in 2016, either didn't vote at all, and maybe they voted for Trump, 
And now they're voting against Trump. Now, let's talk about the polls. Polls show that Trump does not have much support among many members of the black community, but his support is more pronounced among black men than black women. And several credible surveys indicate that it's more pronounced among African-American men than it was in 2016. In September, Gallup found Trump getting 19% job approval among African-American men, almost twice the support as among African-American women. So Trump still doing quite poorly in the black community, but there are modest signs of an upswing, especially among men. Yet MSNBC conducted this panel with black men, only black men, who are now and only now voting against Trump. Okay, such voters exist. Guess you could put them on TV. Why not? Just not typical. Here's Tremaine Lee. Each to a man, they said they regret their decision to stay on the sidelines in 2016. But after four years of thinly veiled racism, racial animus, and all the division and violence we've seen in this country, they say they're at an inflection point and enough is enough. But let's hear it directly from them. MSNBC played the comments of two of them. One cited Charlottesville as his turning point, and the other, well, let's hear Tremaine ask him. Robert, what was that moment when you said, you know what, I was on the bench in 2016, but I got to get involved this time? Breonna Taylor, uh, period. It's not fair. It's not fair. And it has to stop. But it's, it's, it has to stop. And that was the aha moment, the most serious moment of my life in your own house, in your own bed. And the person that got charged was charged because he protected his own home. Well, Trump didn't really say much about Breonna Taylor. I understand that such a violent act of a police killing a citizen is a shock, an awakening. It's a call to action. I get all that. But Robert heard there gave two details and they were both wrong. Breonna Taylor wasn't shot in her bed and Kenneth Walker, her boyfriend who shot at the cops in self-defense, was arrested originally, but the charges were dropped. He wasn't charged. The only person charged was a Louisville police officer, Brett Hankinson, who was charged with reckless endangerment for spraying bullets into Taylor's and neighbors' apartments. I don't fault this citizen for getting a fact or two wrong, but think, step back. There is a process by which a clip, an explanation, gets on the air. They could choose a number of people saying why, what was the turning point for them voting against Trump, or they could just quote one guy or no guys. It might, to hear this, it might strike a viewer who is well acquainted with the actual facts as, so this guy says he's voting against Trump, but he's misinformed. What does that tell me? What conclusions shall I draw about perhaps the rest of the panel, the rest of black voters? I don't, it's just confusing to a viewer who knows the actual facts to hear that as the explanation. Why would they put it on? Perhaps a viewer would conclude that MSNBC didn't know he was wrong. MSNBC didn't care that he was wrong. Maybe MSNBC thought its viewers wouldn't know he's wrong. Therefore, the clarity of his opinion wouldn't seem off. Like I said, I did say this in the beginning. You are going to hate me. I bet you do now. I bet you're saying, Mike, of all the things to nitpick, this is what bothers you? Of all the things compared to Trump's cavalcade of obscenities or of all the things said on that other cable news network, and their constant barrage of disinformation, you nitpick this, 
Yeah, you're right. All the rest of that is much worse. But I militate against them every day in this space. Also, I really hope for a post-Trump America where we have to rely on our media institutions for delivering the news straight. And if they get rewarded for this type of coverage, if this type of coverage goes unchecked and unremarked upon, I don't think we're setting up the country for success. So hate me if you must. CNN fails to offer proper context. MSNBC advances misinformation without correction. Yeah, it certainly pales in comparison to the unfathomable monster who's steering a runaway train into an oil refinery for some reason filled with children. I get it. Don't vote for Trump because of my media criticisms. Do always consume media through a critical lens. It'll come in handy when the threats ever become a little less than existential. That's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He wonders if Jeb goes on Celebrity Jeopardy with a fight over the exclamation mark. Margaret Kelly produces the gist. Like Jeb Bush, her grandfather was a senator and her father and brother were both presidents. Only instead of senator, substitute hat wearer. And instead of president, substitute sufferer of lactose intolerance. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She recalls that as part of his 2016 run, Jeb released a book called Reply All, consisting of emails he got as Florida's governor, and she wonders if Jeb has a claim against Alex and PJ for a taste of that Gimlet podcast money. The gist, please clap. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>